I'm Jane Daly and this is my podcast for people who know. As a thought leader and work-life activist, I'm curious about people who are accelerating their work and life. And whilst finding their own balance, they have found time to inspire others to do the same. My interest in Nigel Payne started over 15 years ago when I was working at Marks and Spencer as global head of L&D. I was privileged to be invited to the BBC where Nigel was heading up operations there because the BBC were doing some extraordinary stuff and I was amazed at the time to see what they were up to. Welcome, Nigel Payne. Thank you, Jane. Nice to see you. Nice to talk to you. Absolutely. Nigel, I'm delighted to have you here today. I'm a huge fan of you and your work and your your amazing books. Um, So I can't wait um, to have a conversation with you today. So, um, Nigel, um, you've agreed to come in the the, uh, People Who Know Work-Life Time Machine today. Just before we do that, tell us a little bit about yourself. You do so many of these podcasts. So just tell us a bit about you. Well, I do. I, I, I like sharing ideas and I really enjoy talking, talking to people. I learn a lot from simply putting stuff out there and having people come back at me, sometimes positively, sometimes not positively, but <laughs> at least coming back at me. Um, I teach. I teach a lot. I teach at the University of Pennsylvania on a doctoral program for, it's called the CLO program. So it's for people at senior level in business who are also interested in learning. So not all, not all permanent full-time learning people, but people who have an interest in that kind of people frame. And that has been a massively interesting journey over the last 10 years or so. As you said, I write, I can't stop writing. I'm now kind of addicted to putting words on the page. And that is also a way of trying to understand the world. But a lot of what I do is um, work with organizations to try and help them make learning better, not for the learning people, but for the whole organization. I think learning has got a massive contribution to make. I think we're living in an age where if organizations don't learn and the individuals within those organizations don't learn, we're all in big, big trouble. And this current crisis has really thrown that into relief. There are some organizations who seem to just be able to take on any issue, challenge and problem and turn on a sixpence. And there are others that crash straight into the wall. And I would argue that that's about the velocity of learning and the attitude towards learning. So, you know, I'm spending my time trying to help individuals, trying to help organizations, trying to think this all through on behalf of my community, if you like, on behalf of other people. That's really what I want to do. And that's challenging, enjoyable, stimulating, slightly terrifying, but a lot of fun. It, it certainly is, Nigel. And you and I have had lots of conversations about rethinking. Um, and in particular, um, one of the areas where you and I link is around culture. And, um, you know, today we're really going to get under the skin of self-determined learning culture, which I know is something very close to your heart. Before we get in the time machine, would you just explain um, to our listeners uh, what that is? I call self-determined learning hoitagogy. And that's a term that came around in about 2000 when a couple of academics called Haas and Kenyon wrote a book called Self-Determined Learning. And they formally named it hoitagogy. But it's the, I think the easiest way to understand it is if you think of pedagogy, which is essentially orthodox one-to-many 
teaching. So you sit there, Jane knows, I don't know, she tells me, I listen. And then in the 70s, Malcolm Knowles came up with the idea of andragogy. In other words, learning directed at adults and essentially self-directed learning. Learning where individuals learn from each other, they took charge of their own learning. And the teacher, instead of being the know-all in the middle, became the facilitator and the person who could help everyone else learn. Very specifically aimed at older people, particularly adults, people who had a maturity in their own learning. Haas and Kenyon came up with hoitagogy, which is self-determined learning, and that's totally different. That is when everybody is both a teacher and a learner, so that everyone takes on a role depending on the circumstances. Sometimes in the same conversation, one person is a learner, one person is a teacher, and they reverse. It's about getting at complexity, trying to understand the underlying issues, the core of what's going on, what's going wrong. And as a group, more than as an individual, really, identifying what the issues are and what they have to do about dealing with those issues. So it's about individuals consciously building their knowledge, building their community, and Acquiring those, acquiring those competencies that allow them to be more adaptive, more adoptive, more resilient. So in some ways, hoitagogy is the, 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 the idea of the age. Many organizations, without even knowing the term, and the term sometimes gets in the way, many organizations are desperately trying to seek self-determined learners in their organization because only those people are going to have the nous and the wherewithal to kind of deal with the com conflicts, the challenges, and the problems that they face at the moment. And that doesn't mean that there's nothing uh, to do with pedagogy or andragogy. Now, we haven't suddenly said the only learning is self-determined learning. There is a place for pedagogy. I can sit at your feet, Jane, and learn from you and find that incredibly interesting and stimulating. I can also facilitate the learning of others. And if I didn't believe that I had a role of a, as a facilitator, I, I think I'd give up. Facilitation is one of the things that I do. But the key, the direction is towards self-determined learners, people who are in charge of their own destiny and are self-reflective, self-transforming. They're, they're kind of like a, a, a perpetual motion machine. They start off and they just keep themselves going and they keep the motion and they keep the energy going and they keep learning because the world out there is changing as nobody listening to this would doubt. The world changes sometimes very, very fast. And we have to be able to cope. We have to be able to make decisions. And we have to be able to build organizations that can cope. So the idea that organizations are now full of a few people who know and a whole lot of people who do is patently ridiculous. If we're going to survive, organizations need to draw on the expertise and skills of their entire population. So hoitagogy, self-determined learning, is really, really important. And I can't believe anybody would say, we don't need that. Everybody needs it. And we need it more urgently now than we've ever needed it. Absolutely, Nigel. Thank you so much for that. And I, I totally agree with you. And of course, the culture is the collective 
of, of that and, and the sharing of it in the ecosystem and how you get the ebbs and flows. Exactly, exactly. Um, it's not about individuals. It's about how you work in that community. You're absolutely right. And that's so important because we're in, in some ways we've gone wrong in thinking that learning is about individuals and that if we empower individuals, everything will be fine. If you don't build the community and you don't build the environment where individuals can share and develop that ecosystem of knowledge and action, you know, action across the organization, we're kind of lost. So you're, you're spot on there. No, that's, that's great. And we're going to unpick that as we go through with a time machine. So Nigel, are you happy to get in this time machine with Certainly me? Certainly am. Yes. <laughs> Let me at it. <laughs> Fabulous. Great. So this is a first for us, right? So, so let's get in the people who know time machine and um, I'm going to set the clock to 2002. So, uh, so, so we've arrived and I'm going to set the scene for, for what's going on in this era. Um, so the euro is, has just been introduced um, during this time. Um, reality TV is becoming a big trend, whether you like it or not. The Osbournes were leading the way. Um, Queen Elizabeth II was celebrating her golden jubilee. And Halle Berry becomes the first African-American woman to win an Academy Award for her role in Monsters Ball. Elon Musk, the entrepreneur, founded SpaceX and the, the, there were a number of cell phones on the market that were taking the market by storm, um, in particular Nokia and the Blackberry, Nigel. Um, and um, just to finish in this area, LinkedIn was co-founded by Reid Hoffman. And uh, for you, Nigel, you had just taken a role at the BBC as head of their learning and development operations. So tell us what that year was like for you. It was really, it was really exciting and really scary. Um, when I took over the BBC, I had uh, 537 people in the team. So it was a huge operation and it spent a lot of money. And the BBC was going through huge changes led by Greg Dyke. So I'm unashamedly a dykist, a Gregist, I came in with Greg, I supported Greg, I loved what he was doing in the BBC, and I struggled when he left. It became a very different place after he went. So the big challenge in the BBC was to make it a more human, uh, a more creative, a more engaged and a less silo-driven organisation. And he saw, and many other people saw, learning, maybe not right at the centre of that, but certainly as a very, very important player. So I had to kind of modernise the whole learning and development operation, which was difficult because I had a lot of entrenched views and a lot of people who didn't like this new guy coming in and saying everything has to change. And I struggled, I think, to start with trying to convince everyone. But the whole atmosphere in the BBC was, it was very febrile and it was very uh, engaged and there was a lot of optimism in the place and that kind of carried me through so I was heavily involved with the change program making it happen which was launched round about that time and that that was a big push and I got involved early in arguing for some kind of coherent coordinated cross BBC leadership program for everybody who was managing more than two people and that ended up being a huge program of six and a half thousand participants. And we had to rebuild the onboarding. There was no onboarding when I arrived in the BBC. Every department did its thing. 
and some of those things that it did were absolutely appalling. And we had to create a, a coherent um, one-stop model for everybody who joined the BBC, including the trustees and governors. And we did that. And that became a, a real model. It was a five-day program that was compulsory, that involved every single person joining the BBC having a hand in making a TV program. They got the chance to watch something going out, a television or radio program go out. They got a chance to quiz one of the senior executives. At the beginning, Greg did that every time, but we had so many people coming into the BBC at that time, it was impossible for Greg to do everyone. So at least a member of the executive team would spend two hours with those new appointees to the BBC asking any question they wanted to ask. And some of the questions were fascinating, challenging, and extremely cheeky. But that was good. They were new people coming in. And there was a sense that the organisation was opening up. The opportunities were opening up for everybody. And it wasn't just this departmentally silo-driven organisation that kind of reflected on its past glory and was slightly full of itself, I have to say. And there was a democratization process, an attempt to diversify the population. Greg at one time called the BBC hideously white. So there was a real effort to be more diverse and more inclusive, to recognize that talent could come from anywhere in the organization and to build and promote that talent. So I started the apprenticeship scheme again, which had been dropped. And BBC was famous for its apprenticeship schemes. Um, we began to allow independent learning for anyone who wanted it and to create career pathways for anyone who wanted to do that. We created these learning journeys so that anyone who was in place A and wanted to track to somewhere completely different, could use learning as their way of acquiring new skills. We, we also allowed people one day a year to go and work anywhere else in the BBC. Uh, unfortunately, 98% of the population wanted to go and work on EastEnders for the day, so we had to kind of put limits. But uh, it meant that people in finance could go and see what marketing was like, people in marketing could see what production was like, people in television could experience radio, and so on. And we had thousands of people move around the organization in that way. And we saved lots of people's careers as a result. And the, we saved the BBC the money from having to re-recruit, and we had to digitize. So this was the era when the BBC moved from analog to digital. And I, it's hard to believe that when I joined the BBC, all of the editing machines had to be uh, only touched by editors. No production people could touch editing machines. There were technicians who did that for you. It was all big rooms full of equipment. And you went out as a small crew with six people and we went from that to the era of you've got a camera you've got a laptop do it yourself and that was a massive cultural change as well as a need to upskill the whole organization and we had to kind of get used to smaller digital studios as opposed to the old much more expensive kind of analog studios and we had to get used to much smaller cameras many more people being empowered to create content than had ever been the, the case before. So it was, the, it was really a bubbling up of technology, individuals, culture, everything was coming together. So it was a great, great time 
to be at the BBC. And I, I used to get up every morning so excited that I was going to work, which is you know, maybe not common for a lot of people through their lives. But during that era, everything seemed possible. And we could feel the organization changing. And there were, I was a small part of a massive machine. And one of the things that one of my colleagues, Gareth Jones, said to me, I think on day one or day two, he said, Nigel, this is a very big train set to play with. And the BBC was a very big train set. And learning and development was a large. We could spend lots of money. We produced we produce really high quality material, high quality content. We could respond very, very quickly. And we, we kind of stepped up because the organization required us to step up. And I think a lot of people look fondly back in that era. Alas, it's not the same BBC and it's not the same kind of place. But at that time, in some ways, I was the, the, the man for the moment. And, uh, and the moment came and the moment went, essentially. It really is inspirational, Nigel, and, and so ahead of its time. Um, as you know, as you were saying there, I mean, so much going on, but being able to be an enabler for the organisation, you know, helping it adapt and accelerate from analogue to digital, what a huge opportunity, but yeah. a huge challenge as well. Um, looking back at that time now, what would you tell your younger self? I think I'd tell my younger self to in some ways self-protect a little bit you know that I, I was very gung-ho and uh, gung-ho is not always the best policy so I, I would say make sure that you that enough people are supporting what you're doing outside your organization uh, I, I think I should have been perhaps clearer about the direction and less tolerant of those that were flagrantly not willing to go with me because it was inevitable that direction come hell or high water and we struggled at sometimes trying to accommodate lots of different views and I, I'd also tell my younger self to be a bit more honest about what I wanted what I thought I could contribute and I, I didn't you know I, I kind of got boxed in more and more into learning and development when I could have taken a, a bigger role outside that so I you know I, I think I would be pleased at the way my younger self drunk in, drunk in the opportunity. I would be pleased that my younger self drunk in the opportunity. Um, but I would be disappointed that uh, I allowed myself to be kind of pushed in one direction or pushed in another direction without taking a stand. And there are enough people that, that could have supported that, that stand. And to have, when Greg left particularly, I think that's where I, came unstuck, that when, when um, Mark Thompson joined, I had six months after Greg left, when we kind of ran the BBC, Mark Byford, the Deputy Director General, took over temporarily, and Mark created a team of about 50 around him. I was part of that team. So I, I was kind of running the BBC. We were making big decisions, but not decisions that would ruin the organization or change it in a way that a new Director General couldn't cope with. So we, we were really empowered, and Mark was, terrific to work with and I learned a lot from working with Mike then Mike Thompson came in and I you know like everyone else I said Mark I'm head of learning and development I really like to talk to you uh, I need three or four things to speak about and he came back and said I'm too busy I'll come back to you when uh, when I've got the time don't worry I will get back to you and I, I naively I just said okay that's fine what I should have done is gone and banged on his door because by the time he came back 
decisions had been made, things were shifting, and a lot of other people had pushed in front, and I had just sat there passively. So I, I, my younger self, I would say definitely, I should have made a bigger effort. I should have got to know the guy, and I should have told him what we were doing. And in the end, the narrative was handed to other people, and that was, that was probably my biggest mistake in the BBC. But it, I, you know, I understand why I made that mistake, but it was still a big mistake. So it, it, you know, I went through that whole gamut, you know, from, from the big highs and then the, the huge low when Greg left the BBC on that awful day, when I had a journalist with me actually that the whole day, just by chance, a journalist was shadowing me and she was sat there as we went through that day and it was just the most awful day, awful day. So that low and then picking ourselves up as an organization and surviving for the next six months by the skin of our teeth in a way. We lost our chairman and chief executive on the same day. That's pretty, pretty bad mistakes <laughs> being made all around. And then Mark Thompson coming in and a new era starting and never quite adjusting to that new era. And, uh, and then eventually having to lose an awful lot of those staff. So I spent my time the last year was tough, you know, I, I, cutting budgets, cutting staff, day in, day out. I did it, but it's it's soul destroying. And then once that, once I'd done my job, I kind of I thought I'm I'm not hanging around here. I left I left it. the last one. I sort of turned the lights off, and and I'm glad I did. You know, I don't think I made a mistake there. It took a long time for things to build back up, and I I could have hung around, but I didn't really want to hang around. So, you know, that big learning curve, big, big learning curve huge, for me. Huge learning curve, Nigel. And, um, you know, it's it's incredibly, um, you know, open and honest of you to share all of that stuff, which, you know, I will absolutely give confidence to our guests is that unless you roll your sleeves up and get in and you get out of your comfort zone, which is what, to be honest with you, this self-determination is about. It's it the is. good, the bad and the ugly. It is absolutely about getting out of your comfort zone. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm a great believer in discomfort. I don't mean get, putting people at danger or taking them out of their psychological safety zone, but I do believe in discomfort. And in some ways, where I've struggled most is when I've learned most. And I think everybody will share that. If you stay where you're comfortable, stay where everything is fine, stay where you learn um, easily and comfortably and you don't really move forward then you stagnate you know if you're not moving you're not challenging you are stagnating and I've, that's been a philosophy of my whole life and it's really important to me now you know now I put myself in discomfort and I started when this pandemic began I started learning Spanish which I never learned a word of Spanish and it was really challenging I, th I thought after two or three weeks I have not remembered a single thing I, I cannot learn a language but I persisted and then slowly things started to stick in my head and now I'm really enjoying it and I'm you know I'm, I'm pretty hopeless but I'm I'm getting somewhere and that you know I you can learn a language it is possible to do it things that that I never thought you could do you can do but if you don't challenge yourself and be persistent that's the other thing it's okay to challenge yourself and give up give up you've got to challenge yourself and not give up yep. and not not give up until you absolutely have to give up that's my philosophy and uh, it worked and it works it absolutely does. Nigel, thank you so much. So I'm going to get us back in the time machine and I'm going to take us to 2020. Now, I know you and I should probably fly by, but we are going to stop here. It is rocky. 
um, you know, tell me what you are observing and, and how um, this climate in 2020 is impacting people's work lives. Well, it's massively impacting people's work life. I don't know anybody whose work life hasn't been changed. Some people for the better, it has to be said, but a lot of people for the worse. What I found um, in my own experience was that my whole year, which had been nicely put together and was looking pretty good, and I was going to a lot of places, I had some very interesting projects, conferences I was speaking at, etc. All of that just disappeared overnight. And I, I had two weeks of feeling lost, thinking I've got all this time, I can get down to more writing, but I didn't get down to anything. I just sat there thinking everything that I'd lost, not what I'd got. So I just went through my diary one morning and I took out everything that had been canceled. I just deleted it so that I then didn't look and say, oh, I should have been in Spain today. Oh, I was going to America next week. I just took it all out. And that was the turnaround moment. And, I, and I, I've kind of focused on what I've got, not, not what I've lost. And I think for a lot of people at work, there are advantages. It's tough. But once you start to celebrate what you've achieved, what you've learnt, how you're moving forward, then providing you've still got a job, you can do good work. And it's very interesting that I was reading a survey saying that 47% of people think they're actually more productive in this climate than they were before. And 55% of employers think that their staff are more productive. So I know that leaves 45% who don't or think they're just the same. But nevertheless we have built something out of kind of chaos and, and disruption. And we've managed to transform ourselves and rebuild our workplaces in different ways. So I think we, we, we're changing work forever. It's never gonna go back to what it was. And I hope that we're changing it for the better. And what I've also noticed is that the kind of micromanaging bully is failing spectacularly in this environment because people can't be told. You cannot say to someone who has got to deal with their child, you didn't check in at 10 a.m. They'll just say, get stuffed. You know, I'm, I couldn't do it at 10 a.m. I'll do it at 11 a.m. So that and person who says, I want to see your work three times a day. I want you to put that past me. I just kind of being irrelevant. They're making themselves irrelevant. And people are taking the initiative. They're getting together as teams. They're making decisions. The, de the decision hierarchy has completely shrunk over the last few months. Decisions have to be made. And things that would have taken six months can be done in six hours sometimes, or at least six days. And therefore, there is a sense of empowerment and motivation for those who've made it. For those who are on furlough, the, the, I think the ones who have used that as an excuse to find out, explore their career, think about their life, are getting something from it. The ones who are sitting watching Netflix from 9am in the morning, not so much. And that worries me. I worry about the mental state of what, people who are once really lively, confident, who feel like battered and beaten by all of this. But we are where we are. And I think we should focus on the positive. And what I hope is that organisations are not in the present in despair but building for the future. Every organization should say, how do we survive this week? How do we thrive next month, next year? Because we will come out of this at some point. And those that are taking short-term knee-jerk decisions are, are not doing very well. And individuals who are taking short-term knee-jerk 
knee-jerk decisions are not doing well. So you need resilience in this age, and organizations need resilience. And those people, the self-determined learners are doing okay, I think. The ones who are teacher-led and the organizations that think that they should be teachers and the staff should be the pupils are doing very poorly. But the ones who are self-determined, where they respect the views and the initiative and the insights of everybody and are drawing upon that and empowering people to make the right decisions are doing incredibly well. And you've probably noticed, you know, I've noticed that in some organizations, customer service has gone up, not down. You know, people are saying, look, I'll take that decision. I'm working from home, so I, I'll, I can do that for you. I'll get that sorted out for you. And those that say, well, I'm working from home. I, I don't really, I can't really get in touch with my manager. Oh, I'll have to, I'll come back to you tomorrow. And they never do. You know, they're struggling. So you see this bifurcation going on at the moment. And you it's all around do. learning. Yeah, you, you, you do, Nigel. And I, you know, um, I, I believe you're describing this sort of that the, there seems to be a huge divide, as I'd call it, you know, as, as you say, and again, self-determination being at the heart of this, you know, where, um, you know, we're really seeing organisations who are listening to customers, listening to each other, um, managers listening to their teams and finding ways to, um, you know, cooperate together. And as you say, not only um, are making decisions much quicker, but are much more productive as a team. You know, um, a lot of teams, um, I, I've seen some of the best teams who, you know, maybe had um, healthy food or fruit delivered to the office, changing that budget into everybody getting a little snack to pack from home and maybe going for a walk together to have a meeting, you know. So they're trying and doing whatever they can or maybe standing up for a meeting, just really looking at the holistic edge of people rather than you know the opposite divide where you know um we're seeing people that are you know doing stuff that was poor they're still doing it as poor but they're just doing it online now would yeah. you agree with that observation I, I, co I completely agree that i used to I, I still do believe in walk talks you know walking meetings and i suggested to uh, some people what what you can still do that just go out on your own with your airpods and have a phone conversation with someone. And uh, loads of people have tried that and found it enormously productive. A, they're getting out in the air. B, they're still deeply communicating with, with other individuals. And they're getting almost the full benefit of walking along, talking to someone, from walking along and virtually talking to someone. And you're quite right that once upon a time, there was a worker and then there was someone outside work. You can't separate them now. You cannot say when you're seeing someone's front room and you, the, the, maybe the kids are there, their partner's there, you cannot say you are a worker from 9 until 4 or 5 or 8.30 to 5.30. You dedicate your life to me. You are having to accommodate and see people for what they are, real, breathing 360 degree people and take account of that and those organizations who recognize that and see people who are uh, whole and have whole lives and are supporting them and making their lives better if they can are the ones that are successful and not the ones who are micromanaging and saying it's 10 o'clock this is work time do this the ones who are saying sure yeah of course you can you come back when you can yeah what can you, what do you think you can manage this week what support can i give you how can i help you deliver what you need to deliver not i want to see that finished so we're, we're seeing the world in a different way 
and we're seeing our workforce as a collection of human beings who have other lives and we're trying to accommodate that and to me again that is a change forever i don't think we'll ever go back to seeing our workforce as just names just numbers just people who work and then people who have other kinds of lives and for me that is way way better because once you start seeing the whole human being the obvious role of a manager is to help and support and enable that person and not sit on them and demand this and demand that and there's no room left for the bullies nigel it's really interesting to hear your observations that are spot on um as an expert um what advice would you give people who are trying to accelerate and adapt their work lives in 2020 i would say that recognize that it is about work but it's also about you being the right kind of person to move into that world that you really want to be in. And don't sit there saying, it's too hard, it's gonna be awful, I think jobs are gonna disappear, my life's gonna be terrible for the next 10 years, I'll just take what I can get. Use this moment to actually be ambitious and remake yourself and come out of this issue, this world that we're in at the moment, come out of it a more confident, rounded, learning individual and you'll find that organizations will come to you they want those kinds of people if you come out of this depressed and desperate no one's going to want you sadly because organizations don't want desperate people they want engaged alive people so take a good look at yourself think about the things that you could learn that would help you talk to and role model people you admire find a mentor if you haven't found one and use this as the opportunity to take a step upwards not a step downwards that's what i would advise people and lots and lots of people are doing that and i think that in a year's time they will look back on this as a kind of watershed moment that really helped them not a watershed moment that destroyed their life and their career so you need to be positive above all you need to be positive in this time and see yourself as a learner not as someone who used to learn see yourself as someone growing not as someone who's fully formed and has grown and done it see yourself as someone who can take on new challenges not someone who's slightly afraid of any new challenge and be optimistic that's the message fantastic advice nigel um that is brilliant now let's get into the time machine and i'm going to take us into the future now i'm going to take us to um 2030 which is an interesting time zone um and before the pandemic happened in in 2020 um organizations like mckinsey pwc and deloitte were predicting that there will be less people in full-time employment we would have a gig economy um and, and and in fact um the pendulum would be swinging completely the opposite way so we will have around 10% of people in full-time employment, other people having much more contingent workforces and flexibility, portfolio careers. Um, so what do you foresee in, in 2030? I, I think that, I don't think that we're going to go back to organisations only having full-time employees. Uh, but I think that the flexibility 
will not be at the cost of people's security and their future. One of the interesting things that has happened in the last few months is that highly skilled gig economy workers have been really suffered because organizations have said, well, we can't cope with that. And therefore you get nothing. You go from uh, hero to zero in three hours. So I, I am sure that we will start to offer more security, more protection, and create a, a really valid pathway that isn't the full-time working for an organization career pathway. There will be a perfectly legitimate way of being a kind of generatively learning with different organizations and organizations respecting that expertise and not being able to abuse it quite in the same way. So that I think the workforce will be flexible and probably even more flexible because organizations will need to evolve and adapt very quickly, but they won't do that at the expense of one group who are protected, who happen to be called full-time permanent, another group who are not quite so respected, who are full-time temporary, and then not so respected part-time and contract workers, and then right at the bottom, the gig workers who have no respect and no, no security. I, I think we'll create a different work environment and offer different kinds of protections. In other words, to allow the workforce to be more fluid and flexible, but not to do it at the expense of individuals. And I think what we've seen is that we live in a reverse pyramid now, that the people we most value are the ones, the Amazon deliverers who come you know, every day to where I live the post office workers, the shops that are open, the supermarket workers, those people who we've taken for granted, we recognize now as being pretty heroic. And when I've talked to people, you know, people saying, oh, there's no way I'd do that. There's no way. I... And you realize these people, regardless of their age, are out there driving buses, driving Ubers, being in hospitals as nurses or, or support staff. They deserve more because they actually contribute more. We realize now what they contribute to make this world go round. So I'm hoping that we'll have a differently formatted work environment where different kinds of workers have a different level of respect and therefore a different level of remuneration and certainly a different level of security. Now, I don't know how quickly that will happen. I think it could come quite quickly because we need to change pretty rapidly come 2021. We're going to have to make that a huge year of transition. We've got to do it in the teeth of a massive, a massive recession. So therefore, maximum flexibility, maximum opportunity and uh, recognize that organizations will never be the same and the people who work for them and with them will never be the same. So again, maybe I'm naively optimistic, but I, I honestly think this polarization that has occurred over the last 10 years, for good reasons that it occurred, but for the, the, the wrong outcomes of lack of security, lack of respect for certain members of the really productive members of the workforce and everything going to the few will have to will have to shift so more of a balance nigel really more of a balance yeah more, more of a balance and recognize where the value is being added yeah absolutely you know um you know for me the huge opportunity which is in the hands of all of us um you know i mean if you if you were to read some of the you know predictions around technology and ai in particular um a lot of people uh, paint a dystopian future and of course that is is possible 
But, you know, for me, it, it really is in our hands, isn't it? it? The human flourishing is in our hands for everybody and, and getting that balance um, for everybody, empowering people. You know, let's not forget that amazing quote um, of the guy that was working for NASA who was... Um, Sweeping the floor janitor <laughs> who said, you know, what, what are you up to? It's like, well, I'm putting a man on the moon. And, and as you, you know, what you've described is exactly that emotion here. We're all in this together and we're, we're, we're all part of this. Um, and I think so. I think so. Just, just like organisations and society, that just like organisations are going to recognise the contribution of everybody who works in it, not just the small elite. I think society will have to recognise that it's actually a bit more complex and joined up than it ever thought it was. And that uh, we, they too, the world in general, needs to recognise the contribution of everybody. So, yeah, it, it links together organisations, our community, and the importance of all of our brains coming together to get us out of the mess that we're currently in. Definitely. And I mean, let, let's talk about um, people professionals, learning and development professions, performance consultants. There's so many words to describe, um, you know, our, I'm going to call us our community. Um, we need to be planting those seeds now because we're already behind the curve, Nigel. A lot of organisations are already behind the curve. You know, um, what, you know, what are your hopes and dreams for people that are, you know, like us, um, who, you know, we've got to all do something different. What, what are the seeds that should be changing and being planted now in order for that ambition of yours to materialise? I think there's a lot of speaking up to be done. You know, that, that there's a role, I feel I have a role in, I speak to, I've probably spoken to well over a thousand people since this all began, mostly on webinars of one sort or another. I think it's time to speak up and to be more assertive in what organizations need to do to come back stronger and not to allow the same old, same old, because mainly through lack of imagination or lack of ideas. So I, I think now is the time to say, build for the future. And these are the things that will help you flourish. So this isn't about being nice. It's about being pragmatic and it's about being focused and about getting back the best organization that you possibly can. So I, I, that, that's my, I take that on board myself to be a little less willing to put up with compromise in a way and to be more definitive when I talk to chief executives and others in organizations about what they should do. Not there are a number of options, but you really have to do this if you want to get the best out of your workforce and get the best out of the opportunities that will nevertheless and doubtless come over the next two or three years. So we have to shout and not be too tired and timid and hide behind, we're only just the learning bit, you know, just leave us alone. You know, we're, we're happy on our own. We've got to we're be no experts. Longer. Yeah, we've got to be experts. You know, our experts. Yes. And be respected for that. Yeah, yeah, be respected for what we know and what we can bring to yeah. organisations. Exactly. Expert guides. You know, I, yes. I myself have done a, a couple of virtual boardroom sessions um, and, you know, just asking their view on, um, you know, people that are in, in the people side, in the HR, in the L&D side, in the OD side. And it's not good out there, you know, that their view is not good. And that, that what they want is exactly what you're describing, yes. Nigel. And, and it's, it's 
you know, bringing that expert guidance. I want somebody to come in and show me, you know, the, the scenarios and some of the commercial options of what we can do to not only support people, but thrive and adapt and accelerate. And also, you know, not being afraid to, to um, you know, explain to the business that this is going to be uncomfortable and we have to go through this together. And as long as we're fair, consistent, open and transparent, that's what we need to do. Now, one question I've got for you, Nigel, because you are a huge advocate of diversity, diversity, yes. ethics, and, you know, and you've been championing the voice of women in this industry in particular. Yes. For you, what advice would you give, um, you know, women in particular who by 2030, um, if you read all the, the research and predictions, it's still not going to be a great place. In order to accelerate some of that change, what advice would you give to all people that are supporting women and women themselves? Well, again, we're learning such a lot. You know, the, the, the contribution that, that women have made over the last few months to their organizations is conditional on flexibility, on allowing their unique role in the organization to be balanced against their role in other areas like family, like managing managing the household, like um, being almost the, the kind of helper, guider, and, and carer for their work community. So those kind of roles that are almost ignored in the general workaday world, that women need to be like men in order to be able to succeed. I think we're starting to recognize that what women bring to the workforce, bring to leadership, bring to the organization is not just the same as what men bring. It's different and it needs to be heard. And in some ways, it's come into its own in the last few months. So that idea of flexibility, caring, support, engagement is not uniquely the role of women, but it's women who've pushed this and women who've demanded it. And they are standing up to be counted now. I've come across a lot of women in the last few months who said, no, you have to understand my circumstances. I will do as best I can. I will do it in the best time that I possibly can. So all of these things are insights that we should build on so that, that there is no woman listening who shouldn't be sitting down and saying, right, these are the things I've learned. This is what I demand of my organization when we get back to something approaching the new normal. And that is what I'm going to take on board. And they should go back with a manifesto. This is how things will change. And not because it's a great idea, but because we have shown clearly that it works, it, we've demonstrated that it works. Yep. So let's not lose it. So I, I think this is a, an age where the role of women in organizations to take a massive leap forward uh, over the next months, their alone years. But they need to stand up and be counted. Yep. And Step the men up. who support them need to be, be absolutely clear of their support too. Do the same. And I know, Nigel, yeah. you know, I thank you on behalf of... Um, you know our industry because you're you're particularly doing that and that, and I don't see a lot of that so thank you so much now I'm going to be really brave and we're going to get in the time machine but it's your choice as to where we go now backwards or forwards where do you want to go you're in the driving seat I'm with you now 
I only ever go forwards. I only ever go forwards. Um, and I, I think that's probably one of my weaknesses that I don't spend <laughs> enough time looking back and, and reflecting on, on what went part, what I did well and what I did badly. I just move on. Um, I, I, I think we, we need to end up thinking on maybe 2022, 2023. We don't spend enough time. There's the immediate issue today. There's perhaps what we do to come out of this next year. But think about 2022 and 2023. What do we really want the world to be like? What do we want our society to be like? What do we want our organizations to be like? What sort of capability will we need to flourish in that time? And now is the moment to reflect on that and don't let it go and don't let those insights go. You know, it's a time for growth mindsets. It's a time when we be persistent. You know, we take a chance to move to mastery. We take action. We embrace the, the, the conflicts and challenges of the world. But that will come to fruition only in the next two or three years. And that's where we need to start to focus, I think. So I'm, I'm trying to live in 2022 at the moment, trying to think about what I need to do now to make sure what I'd like to see happen then actually take place. Nigel, that's fantastic. And I, you know, I've loved being in 2022 with you. And I, uh, you know, for me, um, that's self-determined learning culture, you know, coming back to where we started will only happen if we empower individuals, but we look at the collective together and, and how we can accelerate and adapt together for good and balance. Nigel, yeah. thank you so much for all of this incredible insight today. It's been a pleasure um, speaking with you today. And um, I know that our listeners are going to get so much out of this session. Thank you. It's been a huge, huge pleasure to talk to you, Jane. Thank you very much. And thanks for some interesting questions, taking me to places I hadn't been for a long time. <laughs> Great Absolutely. to talk. Absolutely. And, you know, for our listeners, um, Nigel is going to share um, three things um, that if you're really interested in self-determined learning, it can help you get closer and unpick that topic yourself. Thank you, everybody. And we look forward to um, taking you back into the work-life time machine next time. Thank you. Thank you, Jane.